Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you are here today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here. And today we're going to be kicking off a new series called Made for Mondays. And uh, this month in its entirety, we're going to be looking at this idea of work. Um, work is what we just saw happening on the stage um, in an amazing group context. It's something that's woven into the fabric of humanity. And it's kind of a hot topic right now. And what I want to do is press into the level of this conversation that's maybe a little different than the conversation that's currently happening across news feeds and articles. Um, one of the things I love is history. And I'm very fascinated with uh, especially obscure parts of history that we don't tend to know about because one of my side dreams is to win Jeopardy, and maybe this is me trying to attempt to do that. But in the Middle Ages, did you know that there was a significant problem in the Middle Ages with a mass hysteria form called, um, uh, like, dancing plagues, okay? This is an actual painting, it's a real photo, Instagram shot of 1300s. Uh, someone was snapping a quick picture of what was going on. This is actually a painting of one of those dancing plagues. Uh, there were a few different dancing plagues that hit Europe uh, through the Middle Ages. I am not making this up. Uh, one of them was in the 1300s and resulted in about 14, 15 people dying. Another one was in the um, 1000s, it w resulted in multiple, like dozens of people dying because they all uh, were just like involuntarily, uh, like I guess twerking, convulsing on um, a bridge and it collapsed on them. And then in the 1500s, there was another incident of the dancing plagues where people would dance for weeks, months, and even according to one middle age account, um, it was about a year long and these people involuntarily just danced right I mean like you think TikTok is bad but imagine if all of society was somehow sucked into TikTok well, kind of sort of already is but you know what I mean like just imagine that was the cult it's today right basically we're all stuck in the same thing that was we just have video of it it's called TikTok but the dancing plagues were a real phenomenon it was part of this social mass hysteria movement because one of the things that's very natural one of the things woven into our fabric is that we are social beings and that social conversations, if someone starts to talk about something, if there is a topic that everyone's fixated on, if there's an item, um, right, we will lose our minds trying to get toys for our kids that we are convinced everyone else is convinced of is the thing to get, right? I mean, if you grew up around a Furby, people punched each other in the face to get Furbies, right? I mean, it's just, and it's this thing that we have, and I, I think one of the interesting things that's happening right now in our culture is that we're having this conversation around the great resignation, which, side note, um, I don't understand why as Americans everything we do has to be great. Have you ever noticed that? Like, we have, we can't say we had a recession, it's like the great recession. I just feel like this sets us up to be really disappointed because what do we do when we have another depression? Is it the greater depression? Like it's just this normal like American thing to just take everything that we experience and call it the great. And right now we're in the great resignation. One of the things that's interesting that's kind of I just like stats is that uh, the unemployment rate with teenagers has, um, is like at record lows right now. So in some ways, the great resignation doesn't necessarily capture what's really happening, but there's this 
almost every single day from a different news agency, from a different article. I read a ton, so I'm always coming across different articles about the great resignation. Why is it happening? Who's it happening to? How do we end it? How do we keep it going? Is this good? Is it bad? This is a social moment right now where we're all obsessed with work. And rightfully so. The pandemic kind of forced us to rethink our lives as in, in its entirety. All of us learned how to have home offices and work from our homes. Some of us had to keep going to our workplaces when everyone else was working from home, and we weren't sure how we felt about that. And that the idea of working became something that everyone started to talk about. And I think if we're not careful, we can end up in the dancing plague, same place, where it becomes the thing we're talking about, but there's actually not the right conversation attached to it. Because at some point, we'll be out of the great resignation, and we'll be out of this season. And what I want to do is give you some practical advice from Scripture that speaks to every single season of work that you're in. Whether you're a student right now, whether you're the CEO of your home as a stay-at-home mom or dad, whether you're working in an emergency room or whether you're working serving people in a dining room of a restaurant and everything in between, to have a conversation around work that kind of um, jumps past the current dialogue that's happening and societally at this social kind of mass level. And that's what this series over the next four weeks is about. It's about looking at work and how do we actually work it. And so through this, we'll look at where work came from because I think that's important. Um, but my goal is that if you love your job, if you hate your job, if you're looking for a job, if you are don't have a job and you're job is working with your kids at home and you're not getting paid for that they're just sucking your life out of you right I mean whatever that happens to be I want this to be a series that meets you where you are and so to get there I actually want to take you to a, a passage that is going to be a little trickier it's a passage that deals with the topic that oftentimes as modern Americans we don't think about a lot in the broad scope of it. We have a very narrow scope of this word, but there's a lot of baggage at attached to it. And so I just kind of want to wade through this and get on the other side of it because this passage is pressing into something that was really common in the first century. And this is not an endorsement of this practice. This was merely a description of what it was like to live in the first century. And so it begins in Colossians 3, written by Paul, with the word, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And I just want to be really clear because I think one of the things that happens with Scripture is a lot of times people skim the surface of the text without understanding the entirety of the text. And you can be, it can be really easy to read this text and think that you see an endorsement in it. This is not Paul writing to endorse slavery. Hey, if you look at the entirety of Scripture, slavery was completely... Antithetical to God's character, he was the great emancipator. If you go back to the book, the book um, of the first five books of what we call the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, you'll see the very first act God does when He brings um, His people out of Egypt as slaves is He directly connects His liberation from them from slavery to His character. 
that he was the great emancipator. He was the great rescuer, redeemer. There is no point in Scripture, there is no clear theological frame where you can use Scripture to endorse or leverage and and manipulate and, and justify slavery. I recognize in our nation's history, this book, unfortunately, was used frequently by people who had power, who pulled the lever of religion because they recognized that religion had powerful sway over people. And so slavery often, incorrectly, was justified with selective texts that were pulled out of context to justify the horrible act that was at the bedrock of our nation for hundreds of years. Now, you also need to recognize that um, Americans do things creatively. And the slavery that essentially helped to grease the wheels of the economic engine of our nation in its early days was very different than historically what slavery had looked like through human history. So when you look at slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is a fundamentally different style of slavery. Still a bad style. But it's a different style. And it's helpful to understand why Paul is writing to to these people in this church talking about slavery. Because the Roman Empire, which is the empire that exists while he's writing this text, about 30% of the population of the Roman Empire was slaves. The predominant, so not only was 30% of the empire slaves, a significant portion of the early church was comprised of slaves too. And so sitting in the rooms and the homes where this letter was circulated was a group of people who were stuck, trapped in bondage. Now, slavery, again, was a little different, which serves some of the context for why he's going to say certain things that he's going to say. Slavery was not based on race. That was a very distinct Western thing uh, that we helped to orchestrate in the last 500 years. Uh, Slavery was not... Um, in fact, if you were to drop into first century Rome, you would not have walked by a home and have been able to identify the slave because oftentimes slavery didn't even stand out with race. You became a slave through two primary reasons. You became a slave through um, debt, and it was a way of paying off your personal debt. There was not a bankruptcy concept back then. So if you did bankrupt, you were a slave. And you would serve the person that you owed the debt to until you paid off that debt. That was kind of a hallmark. And the other form of slavery that was predominant in this season, uh, in this society, was the slaves that came from being conquered. So if your tribe was conquered and you were spared, you weren't killed, which was a common practice when you defeated another tribe, um, oftentimes you were kind of brought into the household as a slave. And again, I say I'm giving you all this backdrop because I feel like this is helpful for us because as a nation, um, it's not hard to find people that even today will use Scripture to justify slavery. Uh, The Internet is filled with a lot of ignorance. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? Um, Not not any of us. It's other people, clearly. Not any of us. Um, But there are people who will use it to justify it. And... And so if you ever see someone bring up slavery texts, I'm not saying you start an argument with them because I think oftentimes um, as a common rule of life, I just ignore stupid people. But that's just my personal life philosophy because I've never had someone on that side be like, you know what, 
You know what really changed my mind? A belligerent internet conversation. Man, that really helped change my view. Not said by anyone ever, right? So I tend to just kind of skim over it. But in my head, I like to feel right when I'm like, they're an idiot. This is why. And I say it in my head, and then I feel all justified, and then I move on. Uh, to give you that moment, here you go. Like, so uh, if someone's proof texting out of the Old Testament around slavery, you need to understand that, first of all, the Jewish society that God constructed through the people, this is like totally a tangent here, but why not, okay, um, is that the society that he structured, when you see the word slave, especially in the first five books of the Old Testament, th first of all, the slave was never a piece of property, which was a hallmark of slavery in the first century um, Roman Empire and in the Western empires that would come and colonize in the, the, the centuries that followed. People were never property in, the, in Jewish society, according to the Jewish law. Uh, they were part of the household. That was really explicit in, in the Old Testament text, was that these people are part of your household. They're not your property. Number two, it was illegal to be a slave past six years. Because you were a slave because of debt. And at the end of that six years, you would have that seventh year, which was a year of freedom, of emancipation. And the person that you, had, that you served, your master, was responsible in that seventh year of giving you a financial gift to help establish you so that you did not fall back into financial ruin. So when someone pulls out the Old Testament with slavery, now you can be like, you are a dang fool that has no clue what they're talking about. Clearly you haven't read and studied these passages. That's what slavery is referred to in the Old Testament. Anyways, we're going to move on. Okay, so Paul's writing to a group of people who are trapped in a station and a position of life trying to figure out how to honor Christ, how to live out this Christian message while working for people. And the reason I wanted to pick this text because um, no, none of us, no matter how bad your boss is, no matter how horrible your children are, no matter how frustrating your teachers are in this season, none of us have it worse than these people Paul are talking to. So he's about to make a strong argument that all of us collectively can be a part of. And he says these words, he says, Slave, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. The, the very first thing that Paul does as he's speaking to these people in this really difficult place around this idea of work is he helps to reorient how they think about who they work for. The who they work for is the thing that Paul wants to shift their perspective with. It's a really important piece that's actually really practical for you and me. There was a study done in 2009 with um, zookeepers, specifically around the zookeepers who um, didn't complain about the worst part of their job, which if you're not a zookeeper, the worst part of the job of being a zookeeper is shoveling the stuff that the animals produce. That doesn't happen magically. There is no Roomba that you release into an animal cage that picks that up. It's a shovel, and it's you. And so they, they were interested, because this is what academics do, they were interested is why are there a certain group of zookeepers who don't seem bothered 
by all the crap they have to shovel. And what they did is they started researching and surveying and interviewing, and they found that this group, what made this group different, the group of people that didn't complain, the group of people that didn't rate that as the worst part of their job, was that those zookeepers didn't see the job when they were shoveling all of that stuff. They didn't see it as the worst part of the job. They didn't see it as the the part of their job that they hate. They saw it through the lens of they were serving the animals that they loved. And by those zookeepers coming in regularly, understanding that, man, no, you don't understand, by keeping their cages clean, I keep them healthy. By keeping their cages clean, I allow them to live longer. They viewed that lens of who they were working for, and it changed how they worked. And you think about if you think you're working for that sorry, no good boss of yours, if that's who you're working for, then there is a trap tied to that. If your boss is an idiot, if your boss is incompetent, if your kids are ungrateful, little, sorry, no good, you know, right? Like if, if that's why and who you're doing it for, then it's going to be discouraging. If you've got a teacher in your class that you feel like is always on you and doesn't believe in you, it's just out to get you, and that's who you're doing the assignment for, then, yeah, naturally, you're going to be discouraged. Naturally, you're going to be frustrated. Naturally, you're going to be irritated. And it's going to be hard to work hard. And what Paul is doing is saying, no, you're not working for your masters. You're not working for your earthly masters. You're working for your heavenly Father. He, right, he ties it, he says, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Not, because if you're only working for your master, you're, earthly, you're only working for your boss, then you're only working when they're looking if you don't like what you're doing. Right? You and I have bumped up at this, right? When you walk into a store and someone's on their phone, you're like, hey, I don't want to interrupt your Candy Crush game, but can, um, can I get this? Well, if you're only working for a boss and the boss isn't present, then your motivation to work hard when they're not around is really not going to be really high. But if you're a doctor and you're, you work for the health of your patients, you work for the betterment of who they are and what their life could be, then you know it changes how you deal with the ones that you don't like. Because let's be real. There are people in every sector, in every job, you just don't like them. I learned this as a 15-year-old, one of my first jobs ever, which I have no clue why they let me do this, was um, working in a pharmacy, counting people's pills. As a 15-year-old, I'm like, who th- might as well have let me drive a school bus at age 15. But this was one of my first jobs. And people would get so mad about their medicine. People were getting so passionate about the cost of those pills. And I'm like, I just counted 17, ma'am. I don't even know what this pill does. And quite frankly, I don't want to know. But, like, they would just get mad at me as a 15-year-old. And I would have days where it was just, like, mad customer after mad customer after mad customer. 
I mean, I don't know if there's kids, so I can't go there. Okay, I won't go there. I was like, I have a couple moments that will forever stand out. And I'm like, this just makes me feel uncomfortable. I am 15 years old, and you're screaming at me about this. Okay, so moving on. But, like, you, if that's who you're working for, then it's really hard to want to work for them. It's really hard to want to keep your cool for them. It's really hard to want to, like, engage with those people. And Paul is saying, you aren't working for them. You're working for him. And what this does is it, it shifts how you work, right? which is what he continues to do here. He says, whatever you do, which is really broad. Remember, these are slaves. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. It's like give it your best. Give it your all. So when you understand who you're working for, it changes how you work. Right? If you work for a boss that doesn't appreciate you, who doesn't see your value, who doesn't see what you bring to the table, right? if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad in that season from 0 to 23, then it's really easy to feel unappreciated. It's really easy to feel like no one else sees what you're doing. It can be discouraging. And what it does is it puts us in a dangerous place that this group of people would have very easily understood, but I think, frankly, you and I uh, would understand too. When you don't like who you're working for, it's really easy to justify a lot of really poor, bad, lazy work. Well, my boss doesn't appreciate me. My boss doesn't see the value I have. You know what? It doesn't matter. If I give this my all, why does it matter if I worked hard on this presentation? Right? Why does it matter if I spend all the time I'm supposed to on this report for them? They don't care. They don't appreciate me. They don't see the value I bring. Because who changes how you work? But if you're working for a different reason, if you're working for a purpose for that person who created work as a gift, then naturally you bring your best. You work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. It changes how you work. I've sat across from people who have justified pathetic, poor performance in different spheres of their life. I've seen people write off essentially robbing the business. Because when you work for a business, there's a contract that I'm going to give you my full, my all, for this hour, and this hour equals this much. And it's really easy for us as humans to justify giving 50%, but still collecting 100% of the paycheck. Why? Well, because they didn't appreciate me or they don't care or whatever, fill in the blank. And this is a hard teaching, isn't it? Because this is essentially why this passage is so in your faces because this passage doesn't allow any of us to uncomfortably exempt ourselves, to squeeze our way out and say, well, you don't know my situation. Like, were you a slave in the first century? Okay, well, then I'm pretty sure you're all collectively bound into this thing like I am. And he's saying, 
how we work, it should affect our conscience that even when someone's not watching, we still give it our best. And he says, just in case the conscience component doesn't inspire you, he, he layers it with this sentence at the bottom when he says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And actually, the word he uses is wages. He's, he's drawing a direct connection to, to work. And there is no favoritism. It's like, no, there is no, there's no exemption. Consequences are the other ditch. They're the other thing you can fall into if you don't work hard. That at a certain point, if you regularly show up with poor performance, then what eventually happens is you're released from the job. Now, I think Paul is saying all of this because underneath the surface, Paul believes that people who follow Jesus should be the most attractive workforce wherever they are. Because they're the people who give it their all, give it their best. Right? I don't know if you oversee people, but if you've ever had to oversee someone, whether they're in a volunteer role or a work role, there are those exceptional group of people that you just wish you could clone and make all of your workforce. The people who give it their all, people who when you give them something, they follow through with what they said they were going to do. They deliver above and beyond the quality of work. They weren't just people clicking the box or doing the thing. They actually took pride in it. And those are the people that we look for. Those are the people that we want on our teams. Those are the plumbers we want to hire. Those are the con contractors that we want to employ when we're doing work. Those are the mechanics that we want to have working on our car. Right? Like You and I get this because we want them working on the things that we won't work for. And oftentimes in our society, what we've done that's been really helpful is we've digitalized reputation. So here's a five-star mechanic. Right? Some of us will pay more money to take it to one person because we know that they're going to do a better job even if someone else is cheaper. Right? And it's normally their Google, their Yelp ratings. Right? Like those ratings tell us their reputation. And I think working through this passage of Paul pressing in to this group of people, I think naturally makes us ask the really hard question, too, of what's our reputation? Right? Like this is not a feel-good question, but here it is. What's your reputation at work? What reputation do you have? If your boss needed to get something done, done well, would you make the list? If the people who worked for you really had a problem that needed to be solved, what's your reputation? Now that question isn't meant to crush you, isn't meant to leave you condemned. It's meant to be an honest mirror. And the beauty of Scripture in another letter written by James, he tells us right, that the Bible is that brutally honest mirror that allows us to see the worst so that we can respond to it. Because right? 
none of us want to walk into life with that big piece of celery sticking out of our teeth. Right? We, we want to, if, if it's there present, we want to respond. So if you knew that your reputation is that you are L-A-Z-Y, wouldn't you want to do something about it? If you knew your reputation was undependable, would you want to correct it? And this is Paul's point. If you're a follower of Jesus, then naturally, we should be the most attractive workforce. I mean, this is illegal, but it's like, there, Paul would argue there should be a question in the application process. Do you follow Jesus? Like regularly, legitimately, Christ follower. Then yes, okay, you're automatically top 10%. Why? Because those people, if they're following Jesus, then they're the people who are working for a different purpose. Their work goes beyond a paycheck. Their work goes beyond some camera watching them do it. It goes beyond the gratitude or the lack thereof of the kids that they take care of every single day. It goes way beyond some state standards and testing as a teacher because you're not trying to teach to allow kids to pass the standards. You're trying to build curious learners who have a passion for learning. If you're in the security industry, it changes how you think about your job. This, I love how practical and how infectious this teaching is because it makes all of us up our game and whatever the game happens to be. But here's the one thing I want you to understand and that you may feel discouraged because right now you're underappreciated. Right now you may feel like you're languishing, that no one sees your genius. No one sees the capacity that you have. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I just give it to you for the sake of, maybe for some of you, you need to memorize this thing. Because you've been busting your rear end on a ball field in high school. You are working hard in the midst of college right now, trying to earn that degree. That you're working so hard starting off in your career. And you feel like you give 120% and no one even appreciates 10% of what you do. You may be languishing in that toddler phase of parenting right now. I mean, this morning I have a toddler and I mean, like, sometimes we weep about things and I'm like, he's crying. There's these funny memes that it's like, um, pictures of toddlers crying and then why they're crying it's like crying because we won't let him jump into the swimming pole even though it's 20 degrees outside and then it's like he can't swim it, i mean this is like th- that's where my son is right now he weeps over things that aren't even things he can do he's so passionate about it and and that's an exhausting phase of life but what i love about this is that th- those who consistently deliver the best. Man, they don't stay in the backdrop forever. 
they eventually, they eventually show up on the scene. And people see it. And people appreciate it. And that's the mechanic who spent 10, 15 years building a shop with a reputation, not cutting corners. So now every single person whose car breaks down, that's the first person they call. This passage inspires me regularly. In fact, one of, in life planning, where I've, you know, so this series has nothing to do about helping you find your perfect job. Um, I'm, uh, this series has nothing to do with finding your sweet spot or your teen genius or any kind of personality assessment. Like, this series has nothing to do with any of that. Because these people and this station of life that Paul wrote this letter to, they were not taking a teen genius assessment and doing strength finders. They were slaves. And I would argue the wisdom that Paul gave them is so much better than even finding your sweet spot. But I'm not discounting the goal and the value of those things. Right? In, in fact, in January, we'll, we'll roll out a series. And alongside of that series is a three-month process for those who want to engage um, with a life planning, life process where I help you, walk you through for a series of about 30, um, well, it's about... 90 days of us journeying towards finding and evaluating and clarifying with this very thorough process who and how and what you were made for. Okay, so I value that. I'm going to roll that out in January. I've gone through that. And one of the storylines in my life that came out of me processing that, that comes from this passage, and this sounds stupid, but this is my title. It's called Octogenarian Champion. What that means is that, like, I'm going to peak when I'm 80. So you can judge me right now, but I'm only halfway there. When I'm 80, my best sermons are going to come out of my mouth. You're getting the bad ones right now. Okay? When I'm 80, that's when I, my wife is going to be like, mm-hmm, he gets me. Because that's what I'm aiming for, 80. I'm going to be the champion. That's my target octogenarian champion. That's one of the storylines, right? Because I just want to keep being faithful because who I'm working for is him. And it changes how I work, which is hard. And I just happen to believe that if you keep doing that over time consistently, you start to slowly separate yourself from other people who are not working for him, who are not working as hard. And you double-click on anyone who is successful, and you will find that principle at place. Whether it was Michael Jordan, who would shoot hundreds of free throws, hundreds of free throws, once he got into the NBA. Right? Like, double-click on anyone who has attained any type of success, and it was, they kept working hard when they could have stopped. And that... When we do that, what happens is that Mondays start to look a little different because when you show up and you have a different perspective of who you're doing it for, why you're doing it for, and it changes how you're doing it, people start to notice. But ultimately, even if they don't, you don't care because you're not doing it for them. You don't need them, which is the last piece I want to give you. That you have to understand that this whole entire letter has been written with a deeper, broader context. His advice to them has, has been rooted in the good news of who God is and what God has done. And out of that, 
comes security. Out of that comes significance. Out of that comes value. Out of that comes worth. Out of that comes hope. And so when he finally gets to the part where he's talking about work, he's telling them, hey, look, the reason you can do this in the most insignificant, underappreciated, objectified, vile, wicked work that you could ever have as a human, being a slave, a place where you're never going to find significance, you can still work from a place of significance. And that so many of us, if I'm going to press on that great resignation, resignation for a moment, my fear is that there are a lot of people who are shifting jobs in this season because they've mislabeled their desire for significance. And they think that in the midst of this pandemic, which has stirred up a bunch of things inside of them, that my fear for a lot of people who've shifted jobs is that they've become convinced that what they were lacking in their significance was in another title, in another work site, in another job, in another classroom, in another sports team, in another fill-in-the-blank. That if I just get that, then I'll feel significant. And Paul's admonition to these people and to you and to me is that we work from significance. We don't work for significance. We don't need our job to give us value and worth. We already have it if you're a Christ follower. You don't have to have the, the blessing of your boss to feel like what you're doing is good. Because you're not working for significance. You're working from it. You're not following into the trap of like, oh, well, if I just had this title, if I wasn't the assistant to the regional director, right? If I wasn't just that, but I had the new title, then, then maybe I'd feel better. Then maybe I'd, I'd be okay. Stop letting the poor, pathetic, bad bosses and bad businesses that some of you work for rob you of the significance that you already have. You may feel like your job is a dead-end job, but that doesn't mean you have to be dead in your job. Because you work from a place of significance, not for significance. And you keep showing up faithfully, doing the job you do, not for them, but for Him. And in the process of doing that regularly, and you start to shift your reputation, then in January, jump into that process with me. Let me help you clarify why you've been made and what, what you've been made to do. And let's start to build that plan. But don't believe that finally, when that day happens, you're going to finally be okay. Start doing it today by changing who you're working for and allow the who that you're working for to change how you work. And in that way, what we'll all discover is that we really can be made for Mondays that we look forward to. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and pray for wisdom and discernment and guidance. Pray that for, um, for those who are maybe 
in this room or joining us online today who feel underappreciated in their work, who feel like they're just languishing and stuck in a dead-end job. I pray that even in the midst of this moment that you would remind them that you are worthy, that they're not working for a boss or for a company, but that they're working for you. And I pray that you would help them creatively to imagine how that can change what they do. And I pray that maybe it's not true of every single Christian, but God, may it be true of this church, that how we show up at work changes the reputation not only of us individually, but it starts to create a movement and a hunger in this region for people to reimagine and to, to start to begin to look for people who follow you, Jesus. Because there's something unique about how we work. There's something unique about how hard we work and how faithful that we serve. And so may you bless our hands, may you bless our minds, may you bless the, the areas and the jobs that we show up to and that we show up in and help us in the journey of being made for Mondays to make Mondays just as spiritually profound and as moving as the time that we have with you on Sundays. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, we're um, going to wrap up with a song that we haven't really 